I, my mom passed away uh, December 21st of 2002. I was 16. And the, <laughs> the, the interesting part about it was I like me and my mother were like inseparable, like always, like I just, I, that woman just had a gravity to her that it's like undeniable, like just completely undeniable. Um, I think people just always want to be around like joy and happy and such. Like, I think it is why when you're like, when you're, when you're single and happy, like all the like really terrible people for you kind of go, Ooh, what's going on over here? I want some, I want some of this. Let me get some of this. Yeah. Let me get some of this. Some of this, some of this glow you got going on. Some of this happy, let's get some of this. And like, I need this in my life. But instead of wanting to share it with you, you're just like, no, I want this for myself. And they don't care if they like completely literally take that from you. Hi, and welcome to I Swear on My Mother's Grave. My name is Dana Black, and I am just waking up. Um, I literally think I just said grave, did it grave, the grave. I have to, I have to chug coffee. It's like 8.30 in the morning. I had to chug coffee and make my face. I have to smile. I have to literally smile to get my voice to sound joyful or happy or uh, awake and it's just my voice is so low so good morning hi i'm in traverse city michigan where i live now with my husband and we've been moving around a lot to a bunch of different airbnbs and rentals as we try to find a dream house in this really fun market and time to be alive on the planet so anyway so we'll be renting for a while um, but we have an amazing realtor shout out megan alvarado um hire her in traverse city but we will we will find it. But right now I'm in a home from the 1800s, this beautiful home. But there is a ghost in this closet with me for sure. It might, I don't know if the ghost is sassy or tired or, or jealous or itchy. I don't know. I don't know about the ghost yet, but it's definitely here. But as you know, this show isn't for the ghosts. It's for the living. What a segue. What a segue, Dana. Uh, so today, speaking of living, we're going to talk, or I'm going to share with you an episode I did with someone that I recorded in way back in 2021. Yeah, I know. I know, I know, I know, I know. No one wants to go back to 2021, but we have to do it because this guest is amazing. They're an incredible actor, an activist, an educator, a facilitator, a poet, a public speaker, and an all-around great human. My guest lost his Haitian mother when he was only 16. She died from AIDS. But this isn't an episode about AIDS, even though that's part of her story. But it is an episode about a Black son seeing his mother's infectious joy and wanting to protect it. It's about what it's like to watch the women in your life being mistreated and hurt by the men who were supposed to be your role models. It's about revisionist history towards our parents and the many faces of our mothers. It's about the advice we give young people when dealing with grief and learning to ask the right questions. Quick note, earlier in the teaser, my guest said that his mother died on December 21st when she actually died on December 10th. And he noted that after he listened back to this episode. And I wanted to make that correction on behalf of his mother. Without further ado, this is Greg Jafois 
she was dating this guy who was really terrible to her, surprise, surprise, like to the point of like locking her in the house when he would go to work because we found out later that he was married and didn't want his wife to find out about my mom who was a mistress and didn't know she was. Um, the, the lure of my father, the story, the lure is like my father came while this guy was at work, came and like broke in his red with his red truck and like broke down the door. Probably not literally, but like broke down the door and like saved my mother from this guy. And so like that is how my mother and my father got together. They were never married. My mother and my father were never married, uh, separated somewhere when I was around one and a half, two, because we later found out that my father had a whole other family in Haiti. Mm. And so she continued to, as I said, date men who were very much like her father, my grandfather, and only got married once who spelled the, the, the spell that he cast on all on me. Nobody else was under the spell but me and my mom. That was the only man that she was ever married to. And so uh, outside of, uh, sorry, here in the U.S., I was the only man that she was ever married to. Um, but yeah, no, but dated and just never, it was never something that, that happened for her because unfortunately she, she just dated a lot of men who just took advantage of her. Yeah, that must be hard as a son. I mean, it must be hard as a daughter to watch. I've talked to women I've talked to people who've said it's hard to watch my mom keep marrying jerks. So, but as a son, it's complicated too. I mean, and the first boy of the family, and then you're like, ah, and then legacy that's on you and the weight. I don't know. You, your face, oh your face God. is like, let's just end this call now. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> the I stress think, of it. Yeah. No, I think the, the, the hardest part for me to reconcile, because you know me as a person, like, I, I mean, I'm the guy who walks around with intersectional feminist hoodies on, like, that's me. I grew up the exact opposite of a feminist, though, despite the fact that I was raised by all these women, because they would tell me all these things that I should and shouldn't be doing. But the example that I followed, because it wasn't only my mother who dated these terrible men, my aunts, my cousin, my sister. But I grew up the exact opposite because the women would be telling me one thing, but I would try to model myself after the men. And so they would tell me, don't be this terrible thing. And then they'd go pick the terrible thing. Yeah, they would pick the terrible thing. And then I'd be like, okay. And young me's like, well, women don't want to talk to me because they keep on telling me that I'm like too nice and they just want to be my friend. But I'm like, but these guys are telling you are, are being forward and being aggressive and stuff like that. It's like, oh, I need to be like that. Cause that's apparently what gets you women. It's like, it's like being nice thing is that's for the birds, man. It's it's the just birds. Like, it's just like, I'm, not, I'm not here for this. Like, come on. Yeah. So that duality is like existed forever until, until I realized it's like, oh, but then there are also terrible men who like hurt women, not just like, because the emotional stuff is really hard to see. Like a lot of that is shielded, but like there is something that changes in you forever the minute you see a man strike a woman. There is something in you that dies and is awakened at the same time mm. because I know that there are deeper harms that could be done. I know emotional harm and abuse, like, you know, the cuts that people don't see, 
and then it's harder to get help for those for those wounds or for people to believe you that you're hurting in that way. But there is something about this person knowing they have the ability to not only harm you, but kill you and know that that is what they are aiming to do. That fundamentally shook me out of so many of, of going down a path of being like this anti, you know, all like not all men's person. And so did you see this happen to your mom? I saw it happen to my mom. I saw it happen to my my grandmother. I saw it happen to my sister. And it's there Black then there were black men. There were men who looked like me. And so it was very easy to make that connection. It's like, you don't want to be that because you can be. You're literally looking at what a version of you hmm. could like what iter- that iteration of you, like you're looking directly at what that can be. And do you want to be that? And the answer was a resounding no. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Uh Simply because if they had the answers, they wouldn't be in the positions that they were in. Or so I thought, you know, if like, if they knew the the cure to this, if they knew how to be away from this, then right. they wouldn't allow themselves to be in it. Or so I thought, you know, like, you don't, mm-hmm. you get older and you mm-hmm. realize it's just like, so, son, let me talk to you about coercion and manipulation and power dynamics and patriarchal society. And like, you're just like, ah, oh, got it. But in the moment, you're just like, they don't have the answers. So who do I talk to? And if your mom was trying to keep it all together or keep things separate or keep things, these fractures, these, maybe she was like, that's one part of my life. I don't want to turn the light on. Yeah. And I'm not going to talk to my son about, I was just curious. Yeah. If she ever did address it or Mm -mm. no, or the shame around it or the. Yeah. It was, it was a, I mean, it was generational. Yeah. I, like I said, I was like, I saw my grandmother. I saw my mother. I see my, I saw my sister. You just like, oh, and like, and you know that like there are folks that are sitting like these, these women, I mean, fucking intelligent women are sitting there like watching going, never going to do that. And then end up in, and you're like, oh, oh, like, and so because I didn't have, like there was a there was a time for quite some time like I never thought I would get married because I was like I don't know how to success how to how I would successfully build a marriage because I've never seen an example of one I've never seen a, an example you know outside of like you know your friends I'm you know it's like mm-hmm. no like in my home in my it's like I never saw that I never articulated that but like I never saw that. And then it kind of like, and then I stopped, like I kind of pulled away from romance, relationships, whatever you might call it. I mean, you're still a teenage boy with hormones and you still like, you know, want to touch girls, um, if that's your thing. Um, (laughs) But it's like, (laughs) you know, but it's like, and that that was still there, but like relationships, I was like, ooh, I don't, because I was like, I don't know. And like, and it's like, you, you don't realize it, but like you inherit that fear of just like, what if I become this monster that I mm-hmm. like? I want so badly not to be? 
Did your sister feel the same way in terms of commitment, marriage? I mean, she's not a man, but I mean, in terms of marriage, like thinking about I, she didn't see it and didn't really have an example of it. I mean, I would love to have her uh, have her talk about it, but yeah. look, watch from from the outside watching the relationship that she was in. I would say definitely yes, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, and don't blame her. Don't blame her. <laughs> not at, not right. at all. Not at all. But what she, but what she did learn, because I want to obviously connect this back to my mom. Like what she did learn was what was needed in order to keep things together when everything fell apart. Mm-hmm. And so her, so she's the one. So to answer the question from earlier, like she's the one who raised me after my mom passed. I would say actually she was the one who started raising me as soon as my mother became ill. As soon as I moved back down to Miami, my niece was three at the time, right? Because, yeah, because my mom, my mom, my mom passed away. I was 16. Cassandra was 24. Your sister is 24? Sister, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, she was 24. And Irina, so, and so my niece was five. And what happened is... My mother, uh, you know, because of long-term illness, bills come with that. That's the part that people don't talk about. It's like, there are so many bills that are, that once this person passes, like that have to, that people come and collect. And my family being that my, as I said, my sister's 24 years old with a five-year-old, um, the sing- so it's a single mother. And she was also taking care of my grandmother. Everyone came to the funeral. His family was living in Orlando, living in Boston. Everyone came to the funeral, pledged their aunt and such, pledged their, I'm your mother now. I'm here for you, whatever you need. Day after the funeral, everyone disappeared. And so what happened because of that is I learned really quickly and my sister never asked this of me. And I don't know if I ever told her this. Well, she'll hear it now. But um, that was the moment I realized, I was like, I cannot allow her to carry me to. I, like, I can't. And it was a great departure for my mother because I would, you know, very selfishly just like, Dump, carry, 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 carry. Like, you know, like obviously kids and their parents are just like, you know, you brought me into this world. It is your responsibility to take care of me. But like, I was well aware of when I was asking too much, but I would always get it because I was like, I, I was, God, I was a little shit. Um, <laughs> but it, but it's things like, you know, um, like, I, I just want this toy or I just want this video game or, I, you know, and my sister was actually the one who would make those things happen. But in my mind, I was always giving my mother credit for that. But it became very clear to me after my mom passed. And I was just like, oh, wait, I'm still getting. And I was like, oh, oh, because my because my mom, as I said, my mom was ill. So, like, she wasn't able to. But my sister continued to provide in that way. And you're like. Oh. Oh, Oh, I see. Yeah. So I gained a mother when my mom passed, which I know many are not fortunate in that way, but that is what ended up happening. 
Um, and yeah, the dynamics of my, me and my sister's relationship changed. It was, yes, yeah, she was a mother, but like I quickly shifted it to like, no, we're like, we're in this partnership. We're here. Like I look out for you. You look out for me. I will carry my weight on things. I will not always be great at it because I'm 16 and I was spoiled out of my face, but like, I will figure this out. Mm -hmm. And my biggest fear, and I don't, the reason I don't say this out loud is I don't want to dishonor her memory. I don't know if I would have been this person if my mother was still alive, the person that I am now, how I advocate, uh, how I advocate for, for people, how I, you know, like, I, I don't think I'd be like this raging asshole, but her passing really kind of shifted accountability, well, made accountability and what that looks like very, very clear. And I would say not even her passing, but just her being ill for that long, me not showing up for her as much as I could until I, you know, until I decided to. Like those things became very clear, so clear because of that illness. Is that what you mean about accountability? So now you show up for others or make sure you're speaking up for others or advocating for others because you didn't do it for her? Is it is it that cut and dry? Is yes, uh, I would I would say it, it it is that cut and dry. Mm -hmm. um, now, granted, I I overextend sometimes. I do overpromise. Um, I am being better about you know boundaries are where I can mm -hmm. be me and you can be you and we can coexist. <laughs> you know, um, but it is. I think that that is a that is primarily where that came from for me. Just like, mm. oh yeah, because as I said, like I didn't grow up a feminist, but I was just like, but I, but I fully and utterly understood why that was so necessary, especially if we're talking about Black women, especially because mm. mm -hmm. just like I can't pretend that I didn't see what an unprotected Black woman looked like. Mm. You know, like I, I, I. <laughs> I, it's also why I'm a big fan of like not hoarding information and resources. A part of me fully, fully believes that if my grandparents were more forthright in giving information and more willing to truly give this woman autonomy over herself she wouldn't be seeking freedom in these men she wouldn't be seeking support in these men who were very self-serving and ultimately like where she contracted hiv from my understanding as i said so much so many secondhand stories where she contracted this was from the man that she went back to after her and my father split, which was the same guy who my father saved her from. Mm -hmm. But she went back to that man because she was looking for something, for support, for something. And very, this leaving kids, like leaving people ignorant to like dangers of sex and all this other stuff. I'm just like, it, it is the one of the biggest disservices that we do. I'm just like, 
this is somebody who, I mean, not like I say, like my mom didn't understand what a condom was for goodness sakes, but it's like, how do you like boundaries? How do you set that boundary between like, this is not something I feel safe with. This is not something I feel comfortable with. Like when you are out in the world and your arms are just opened all the time, like people will take advantage of that. And as much as I want to blame this guy, as much as I want to blame my father, as much as I want to blame my grandfather, it's just like, I, a lot of the owners, I think, falls on my grandfather and my, and my grandmother for it's just like, you didn't equip this, this person to, to, to know how to fend for themselves out in this world. You have so much grace for your mom. Not once in that story did you blame your mom. And not saying your mom isn't accountable, right? But the grace of like, other people failed her. But do you have moments of, I want to blame my mom's addiction, neuropathy, her divorce, her pain medication, all these things. And yet I'm like, but my mom chose, do you know what I mean? That, that blame, that, that, that anger, sometimes I'm like mad at her. And yet I want to be like, but she didn't know better. She did, right? Yeah. She should have gone to therapy. I'm just, I want to talk about, I want to talk about that with you because it was so, you, you're giving your mom so much beautiful grace. And I want to know if that's you protecting her or keeping this image, like you said, of putting her on this. Yes, pedestal. Pedestal. So that's, I don't know. Talk to me about that. I, I want to learn from that from you. It is. <laughs> you have put me at a loss of words. Uh <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's yeah. I, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> um. Telling you, I mean, it's like you don't have to have an answer. I just thought no, it was I, I, she was not limited. My mom, she was not limited in resources. Uh, well, that uh, this is what I should have done at the beginning just breathe and just think about this. Yeah, yeah, baby. Yeah, uh, do me a favor. Could you ask me the question again? <laughs> it's, it's, and to be honest, it's. Here's the truth. I was so moved that you gave her grace. And yet I was like, but your mom is a, a is a woman, an autonomous woman who made a choice, makes choices, didn't have the full resources. You're totally right. Or wasn't given full access to all the knowledge and the way we don't protect black women and the way we don't protect our youth. We tell them don't go have, don't have sex, but we should tell them how to have safe sex. And I'm going, my mom, yeah, she had depression. She had neuropathy. She had doctors give her all this medicine. She had a husband who divorced her, but my mom still chose to drink. My mom still chose, you know, so I'm butting up against like, it's your fault, mom. You should have known better. You could have gone to therapy. You could have gone to AA. You could have. And yet I'm like, but my mom was sick. And yeah. I wish other people had helped her. I wish more I wish I had fucking helped her. Anyway, so you had such grace because you were like her friend, her her family failed her, her parents failed her. And again, we're really talking about also about the shame of AIDS and about this shame, right? Like there's something <laughs> there that I was just curious how much grace you gave your mom. And I that's really, that's what I want to talk to you about. And I wanted to kind of learn from your perspective <laughs> or why we're trying to protect our mom's image too. Because yeah. you don't want people to judge her. I don't want people to judge my mom. You probably don't want people to judge your mom. Um, <sighs> what's 
<laughs> one, this is a place that I've reached out after 19 years. To, yeah, this year would make 19 years since I've been without my mom. And so that, that has been, so I think a lot of that, the graciousness comes from time. And I think the reason I could be gracious with my mom is I am, I have gone through the process of humanizing her afterwards because those flaws were there. Cause as much as I want to be like, this person failed her, that person failed her. She still accrued all the, all the damage, all the, like all those things still happened to her. So even if unfortunately lessons weren't learned, things happened and very real consequences to those decisions that she made despite, despite where the genesis of that might have come from. It's like, yes, it's like her parents should have better equipped her for this. It's like, but she still did go have sex with this person and contracted HIV. And it's like, you know, her family is telling her not to be with this guy, this guy. It's like, she still went out and dated and married this like man who was very, like, who was abusive to her. Like, to me, it's like she suffered. Like those things were were definitely there, and they don't absolve anything. They don't absolve her life or her choices. But being the fact that I have gone through the process of making sure that I'm not engaging in this revisionist history when dealing with her, like she is human, and all those terrible things were what made her her and i think that's also what made her so incredible it's like i've told you some really terrible things that have happened to her <laughs> and those things exist alongside with me talking about how joyous of a person she was and so i think it's allowing those two things to exist and choosing what i choose to lean on what i choose to be the, the bedrock or the foundation in which I talk about and build up this person for other folks who have never, will never get the opportunity to meet her. Um, I think that that is, that is where that graciousness comes from. Cause of like, cause I can tell you all the bad things, mm -hmm. but luckily for you, I can also tell you the good things and it's, no longer my job to defend my mother yeah 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 i mean for many of folks that would probably look at it and it's like she's unfortunately been relegated to like a picture on my bedside but i'm like i was i was there for like i was there for a lot of it i was there for when I like, I specifically remember like we're standing on a street corner in Boston and she had just come from a doctor's appointment. And like when she finally told me, you know, when I was four, uh, when I was 13, 14, like there are like th those low moments are there. Like I was, I was in the house when she had the stroke, when we were living in Boston in 2000, before we moved back down to Miami, like, yeah, and it looked like oh, it talks about like the mean things too. It's like I was there when she would like lock my sister out of the house because her and my sister were having an argument about something, and like you know, it was the only person with the key, mm -hmm. to, <laughs> with mm -hmm. the key to a very specific lock. 
And then I would sneak my sister and my cousins to back in the, into the house to the window, you know, like things, mm-hmm. <laughs> things yeah. like those things are, those things are still there. Yeah. And she was, and I mean, there are moments where I'm just like, she wasn't the best person at all times. So that's the humanizing part, but I cannot genuinely think of a time where I'm like, oh, you were kind of like a terrible mom. There are moments. Do you remember a good mom moment with her? A moment where you were like, that, that was such a good mom thing she did for me. Oh, there were so many of them. Um, <laughs> I remember. So my original plan was to become an orthodontist. Like this theater well, thing is something that just, <laughs> we, we, that's a, that's a whole other podcast for a whole other day. You were like, I don't want money. I, I'll go this other route. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Screw dental work. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Actually, what uh, what occurred was um, nine eleven occurred while I was a, mm. a sophomore in high school, and I was supposed to how I was going to pay for college is I was going to join the Marines because I'd been doing Marine ROTC for a couple of years at that point, and I didn't want to. I didn't think of it as deeply like on the very surface of, I was just like, I don't want to go die, especially not for this country. Heck no. Like that was just it. Cause I was like, we are, we are going to war. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. Like mm-hmm. we are going to war folks. And so I veered and I was just like, Oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do like, I'm going to do theater. I just need an elective. And I was like, yeah, I'll take a theater class. But where, where I even thought about that is because I remember I was in, I was in fifth grade and we were doing, <laughs> we were doing a show. It was like a Christmas show. And I was, oh my God. And I was uh, playing a character. It's like some, I can't even remember the, the show or anything. All I know is the Christmas show. And I was playing one of the bad guys. It was the wolf and the weasel. Mm. I, I was the weasel. And I just remember. <laughs> and, you know, you're just like, you know, that terrible acting that you have in like, you know, fifth grade where you're just like, my body is awkward. Hormones are rushing through my body right now. And my arms are like, and I'm just this lanky What do my hands do? What are my yeah. hands doing? I'm a slanky weasel. I'm a weasel. Yeah. I'm a weasel. Well, I, I think I maybe had four lines in that show. Maybe. Sure. And the joy that she would have every time she would bring up that damn weasel to people, even though I was just like, mom, no, please don't talk about this. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> Um, I think part of that is also what, why I gravitated back to theater. Cause I was just like, oh yeah, it would, it had the ability to make people that happy, but like, she would just like light up every single time she would tell people about, you know, like she wouldn't go as far as be like, my son is a star, but she just would talk about me being this weasel. And at the moment, obviously I was just like, this is the worst. This is the absolute worst. But I, I genuinely remember how happy she was every time she told people about that damn show. And I'm like, <laughs> you, pe- you peaked. Yeah. You peaked at Weasel. Yeah. At Weasel time. yeah. And, oh, she'd be real surprised about the stuff that I've done since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, woo. woo. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh. She'd be blown away. She'd be blown away. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. But um, from, from Weasel to Whale. <laughs> That's your biography from weasel to whale. <laughs> oh, oh man! I yeah. He played a whale, folks. 
he played it well. That well stays with so me. So good. Oh, so good. I, oh, Tillicum, Tillicum. Yeah. I know that Tillicum, yeah. I know that you obviously work with kids a lot. And obviously you've worked at Playmakers and other places. And you do a lot of education with kids. But I don't know if in those in some of those moments you're giving advice about what you would tell your younger self since you lost your mom really young. But I was just curious, like, are you have you been thinking about that lately? Like, I don't know if that's come up for you, if you've already kind of given some of that advice to younger people who are dealing I, with grief. I have. Oh, and this. Oh, OK. I'm, this is going to be a hard pivot. I think I want to stop doing that. The reason I think I want to stop doing that is because I cannot there's I cannot give genuine advice because there's a part that I kept realizing was missing when giving this advice, which is maturity and perspective. Hmm. I'm talking to them from a perspective of somebody who is 19 years removed from something that they are living in a present moment. And I and admittedly, even on this podcast, it's like, I didn't deal with that as well. And it's not, and it wasn't from lack of resources. It wasn't from lack of support. It's just your foundation has been ripped out from under you. And you're going to be lost. That's what I want to tell them. It's like, you're going to be lost. Be okay with being lost. Be okay with doing stuff that you're going to potentially regret. Be okay with the fact that like your, like your emotions, especially at a young age, like your emotions are going to, you're going to feel like your emotions are betraying you. Your memories are going to start betraying you. You're going to be filled with an anger that you never thought existed. And then right after you break through that anger, there's going to be a sadness that will consume you for what feels like years. And the only thing that you can do is be kind to the person that you meet on the other side of that. Because you're, 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 go you're, you're going to be lost. You're going, like, even if it's like, even if it is a parent that you weren't as close with, a lot of your life, very much as I was talking about earlier, a lot of your life and perspective is shaped by that parent. It's like even things, even if you're vehemently, like in my case, trying to be the exact opposite of your father, you're just like, oh, okay. But it's just like, but you, you have to have a, an inkling or, or, or believe you have an understanding of what that perspective is in order to go in the opposite direction. You know, it's like, there are things that you understand right now that aren't what they are. Um, I wish I had a better grasp of like understanding that I wasn't the only one who was suffering during that time. Like the toll that I was taking on my sister, on my grandmother who lost her oldest child, you know, because mm -hmm. no mother wants mm -hmm. to bury their, like no parent wants to bury their child, you know, like even though I am rather unforgiving to him, it's just like my father going through the fact like his primary connection to me is gone. Cause like that is around the time when me and my father's relationship also uh, severed. It's like, there is just so much that happens during that time that you just can't see or understand, but like go through it 
And hopefully you can look back and be like, yeah, there was some pretty, there were some pretty shitty things that happened. I was not my best version of myself, Mm -hmm. but allow that person to be and be gracious with that person. Because I think if you, if you get, if you get stuck fighting the idea of that person of, or what you should and should not have done, unfortunately, you live in that space with that person, that iteration of yourself forever. And you never leave that. Like it took years, but I didn't realize like I was still, I was still battling with like 16 year old version of me. And it's like that version mm-hmm. of me can't change. <sighs> this version can. So choose to be the, a different iteration of that person, but know that you are the byproduct of that person. Like adults are the byproduct of decisions made by teenagers. And teenagers are byproducts of decisions made by kids. (laughs) 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 And seen. And seen. (laughs) Good night. Yeah, that's incredible advice. That's real advice. That's fucking real. Like I was leaning in. I was like, you know, I mean, I needed to hear that, but be patient, you know, be patient with yourself. I'm only five years in and I'm still, I don't believe in telling people like, it'll get better. I'm like, it might get worse. I'll be honest. The longer this goes for me, I think it's getting harder. Yeah. My grief, my grief. It's because it's not linear, blah, blah, blah. All the quotes that we say, right. And the pandemic and. I think it's harder. I yeah. think it's, I'm getting sadder. I'm getting more like, I want to talk to her. I want to call her. I want to. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And I think, the thing, especially when you're just like, you're trying to reconcile things. It's like, you're in a fight and yeah. everybody understands what it's like to be in a one-sided fight. You're fighting with Yo, somebody who is so not there. Good. You're fighting was, with. That's so good. Yeah. And you're just like, yes. Like you lose that argument. Yes. Like if, if you're, yes. you're in this by yourself, like especially that argument is like. <sighs> right. I can't. She's not even. Yeah. So I'm just like, well, screw it. I'll just forgive then. Right. I'll just forgive or I'll because I, I advise against that. Too. I know. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, or I just make a gin and tonic, but I advise against that as well. But well, sometimes it's OK. Yes. But yeah, that one sided argument. That's so interesting. That's I got to think about that. That's real. But yeah, there's so many platitudes, right? That people say, and you know, all. I mean, yeah. yeah, anyway. And and some of it's really helpful. And sometimes I'm just like, I just tell people like hydrate. Joe Dempsey told me to hydrate when my mom died. It's all he said, drink water. You're going through trauma. And it was the best advice. That was all I wanted. I didn't need to hear anything else. Just have some water, you know, at that moment. Ah. Like, that's what you need. And I was like, water's boring, but I did it. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to know you're a writer, you're, you do spoken word, da, 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 da. you're a performer, you're fabulous. Did you want to read anything for me? Do you have anything that you wanted to share today? No pressure, but I know you. So I was like, I'm going to ask you and you know, you're no, you're not shy. You're not shy. So. And I do have something. All right. So um, I'm going to do, it's called Brown Paper Women. I never learned how to treat things encased in brown, right? As I apply lips to skin of cheek to interrupt the tear careening down its slopes, I do not question where I learned to be resilient. Surrounded by brown paper women who were unaware that the only time man should come before woman is in the alphabet, 
but too often were these women made to feel emptier than an account post-rent. Bodies spent from verbal lacerations, abrasions that reside on skin, turn red, turn black, turn brown again. It seems that cruel comes after black and violence before woman, no matter what dictionary I'm looking at. Soul crinkled like brown paper bags wrapped around a bottle of false hope that promises happiness at its bottom. Fists needing the breakable fragments of skin that were supposed to protect bones, but only cling on to it. Absorbing pain and allowing skin to be the eyewitness at the scene of the crime. No rhyme will make this story easier to swallow. Violence is always standing at the intersection of insecurity and control. They are not tokens, but are viewed as disposable, capable of creating life, but can't make a living. But brown looks better draped in compliments than preconceived notions. Moisturized with lotion made of churned chocolate to make the pain dissipate. The scars stay, even when the men won't. This is not me condemning all black men, but the color of your soul should not mirror the sky. Babysitting the children of dark clouds behind your eyes on behalf of those men. Forgive me. As my pen dances on the pages of this love letter and I attempt to wrap my words around the scars that haven't surfaced yet. I wished for a dad, but this was all we could get for years. I feared I would grow to commit the same crime against your skin. I'm glad I have broken that cycle, although I never learned how to treat things encased in brown, right? Thank you. Capable of making a life, but can't make a living. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of good lines in there. The chocolate moisturize. <laughs> Read that again just for me, for Dana. What was that? Oh, that was so good. I was like, what is that? I can't. I want to hear that one again. <laughs> moisturize with lotion made of churned chocolate to make the pain dissipate. It's good. Nice cocoa. It's good, friend. Nice cocoa butter reference, so, you know. Yeah, exactly. Cocoa butter. I was like, oh, that's right. Um, so I've I've never, this is fun. I've never had someone read and then ask them the final question, which is really cool. Uh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> I always ask my guests. I don't know if you've, if you've listened. I have. I have. I ask them to tell me their, mom, their mom's name in this moment, how you're feeling about your mom, what is coming up for you right now, today on this call. And to tell me your mom's name. My mom's name is Gertrude Chiffoy. And I am grateful that we have the same initials, which was not, uh, it, that was not the initial, uh, that was not the, uh, the initial intent because this was Greg, uh, Greg Schiff, uh, Gregory, Gregory Schiffois uh, was not supposed to be my birth name. I actually had another name picked out and my father upset my mother whilst baby was being had. She kicked him out of the room and my aunt was there and she asked my aunt what name my aunt liked and my aunt liked the name 
Gregory. And she's like, and y'all have the same initials. So, thusly, Gregory Chiffois, well, Gregory Cedric Chiffois was born, but Cedric isn't even on my birth certificate because that's a, a variation of my dad's first name. Yeah, don't piss off a woman who's literally passing a human through her body. Come on. <laughs> just, uh, you know, just those little things. But yeah, I'm feeling. I I am grateful that I am in a space in which I can uh, be challenged in the best way possible about speaking about my mother, honestly. Because yeah, not 19 years has the ability to to fill in a lot of a lot of gaps and to try to fill in spaces that are already filled with something new, something better, something more soothing, um, something more palatable, not only for the world but like for yourself. But I I'm glad to have this conversation to know that I, I'm still in a place where I am challenging those things that would move my mother away from the human that she was and have her live in the idea of what I wish she was or how I would love the world to see her. Right? She was Gertrude Jeffwa. She lived to be 49, which is way too young. Mm. She would have been 67. Is that right? This year. Yeah. She would have turned 68 this year. Yeah. September 28th. Libra makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So I grew up in a house with nothing but Virgos. Like just everyone was Virgo except she was the only Libra. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. That's a- I'm a Virgo myself, so yeah, that's a lot of organizational overthinking Virgo energy in one household. I had forgotten all about the beautiful nuggets of wisdom that Greg doles out around talking to young people about grief since he lost his mom at 16. I heard it again for the first time when I was working on this episode, and I loved how he says, you're going to be lost. You just have to go through it. You might not have been the best version of yourself but be gracious with that version of you. I'm still battling with that 16-year-old version of me, and that version of me can't change. But this person can. It's like being in a one-sided fight with yourself. Be kind to yourself. I, Dana, lost my mom in my late 30s. I was not 16. Am I allowed to forgive the 36-year-old version of me? The version of me that sometimes saw that my mom was calling at 8 a.m.? and I just let the phone keep ringing. I'd never pick up. The version of me that would yell and cry at her and beg her to get help, while also storming out of the room and saying, I hate you. The version of me that knows I wasn't always patient with her. The 30-year-old version of me that sometimes got so overwhelmed thinking about what kind of Mother's Day card to buy her that I would just walk out of the Walgreens with nothing. The 30-year-old version of me that would stay up in my room for most of Christmas Day, because I didn't want to have to go downstairs and talk to her once she finally got up around 4 p.m. in the afternoon. The version of me that was relieved when she passed, because now I could finally fully and openly grieve. The version of me that knows that I had a great mom, 
who deeply loved me and was proud of me, and I still took it for granted for most of my life. It's a messy, ugly, one-sided fight with yourself, with myself. But I can still hear my mom's voice sometimes saying, yeah, it might feel one-sided, but you're not totally forgiven on my end, so keep duking it out with yourself. This Virgo likes order. She likes neat solutions, tidy answers. But this shit is messy. Still, six years later, this 40-year-old version of me now is just taking it day by day and trying to be kind to myself. We cut it from the episode, but at the end of our conversation, Greg says, what is so interesting is that what we gravitate towards is wanting answers. But I think the thing that has brought me the most solace is figuring out what the right questions are. So I let Greg listen to this episode a year after we recorded it and asked him if he had any new questions for himself or for us to consider. Hello, my name is Greg Chiffoy. And a year after recording this, a couple of thoughts that are in my, my mind is, one, there's just something undeniable about an older Black woman giving you a compliment. I don't know if y'all know that feeling, but like it's a, it's a feeling. And the reason that I bring that up in particular is because I said it is no longer my job to defend my mother. And I believe that to be true. What I didn't say is it is now my job simply just to honor her by being the best version of myself. A black woman the other day just like turned to me and was just like, I know your mama raised you right. And that was um, a great reminder of like, yeah, I am, I am still a byproduct of this woman who raised me and that will never change just as she's not here in an earthly form, but she's still my mother. I am here and I will always be her son. You know, Dana says, you know, this podcast is for the living. And luckily for us, we are still in the place to keep telling those stories without ever having to utter a word. Those stories are, are written on us, you know. My my skin is colored the color of my mother's love, and that will forever be a truth. Two, the advice to young people really stood out to me. It was, oddly enough, I needed to hear that. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that I, that I heard that. And it's made me now want to go back and keep having those conversations. I didn't realize how honest and how clear I was on that. And I think for me, it was the, the fear of not being as genuine as I could be with the young people. But I think that advice of you just have to get through it and be okay with being lost. I imagine that that is probably the most honest people will be with them at that time, especially since we don't tend to treat young people like adults as far as it's like how we talk about them or how we believe they're processing their emotions. Yes, you know, brains are finishing developing until one is 25, 26, 27. But that's a very real experience that they had. And it can be really devalidating to 
to not fully see them as a person going through a pain that is foreign, that is something completely and utterly different. Final thing I will say, as far as a question goes, and I mean, for Dana, for everybody who is going through this, the question I would ask is, can one find their joy in the same place they lost it? I know that that is something that I'm wrestling with specifically within my industry because of how the systems were set up. But what we're talking about here isn't systems, it's people and their memories. They're things that we can engage. I'm not encouraging anybody to engage in revisionist history, but asking the question of this place, this chasm, this imprint that is made on our hearts after we lose somebody, you know, and that memory of them, we, we hold the ability to change that, not because we're changing the history of it all, but how we choose to interact with it. So yeah, I would love to hear the answer to that question. Can you find joy in the same place you lost it? I believe I have. I truly do. The second season of I Swear in My Mother's Grave podcast would never be possible without our editor, Amanda Roscoe Mayo, our music composer, Adam Ollendorf, our graphic designer and illustrator, Meredith Montgomery, and our copywriter, Rachel Claff. Thanks as well to Tony Howell and Austin Heller for all their work on the website and to Heather Bodie for her emotional, spiritual, social, and physical, well, for, for all the help. Thank you. And to all of you, thank you for listening, subscribing, reaching out, and just being a part of this community. I'm so grateful you're here. And if you haven't signed up for our newsletter, you can do so at our website, which is danablack.org. You can hear all about this incredible season and some upcoming live events we're curating just for you. I hope you'll come back. Come back, come back. Don't leave me like my dead mom. You know what I mean? Come back. Talk to you soon. <laughs>